Hello and welcome to Great Ridge Station. I'm your host, Sam Helgerson, and I'm pretty much a fixture around these parts. Thanks for stopping in on your way through. Season 3, Episode 12. Come with me for a moment for a short errand. We're going to the grocery store. You have your list in hand, and the seventh item on your list is milk. So let's meander over to the dairy case and see what we can find. This should be easy, but is it? First, the question, skim, 1%, 2%, or whole milk? Now, just for the sake of argument, let's settle on whole milk. But wait, we're not done. Then there are the questions of which brand. There are two or three different dairy cooperatives and companies represented. And then in grocery chains, there's probably a house brand. And, well, where I live, then there's a high-end brand. You know, that's in glass bottles made by retired saxophone players. Guaranteed organic milk, delicately collected from artisanal cows, with the radio playing the NPR classical station 24-7. Well, once you've made that choice, then we need to get on to the container size. Now, the gallon is the most economical, but if you have anyone in your house who's lactose intolerant, well, you may not use it all. So, there are also half gallons, quarts, and pints. Cardboard cartons or plastic, or of course, glass hand-blown by retired saxophone players. Now, when you get home from the store, what do you have? Milk. Just milk all held to the same standards of purity, and except for your fancy artisanal brand, probably all from the same creamery. But you feel better because you think you had a choice. But you didn't. Really. Not beyond milk, yes or no. It's all cow's milk. Of the, all of the bovine variety, there's no yak milk, no llama milk, no camel milk, and likely not even any goat's milk. Your free choice was shaped and limited by what you have been told is acceptable. The word that philosophers like to use is normativity. All of your choices are for the same thing, because our culture tells us that this is the way things are supposed to be. There was a book that graced my office shelves for a few years, and the title says it all, On Earth As It Is In Advertising. The idea was that we try to shape our lives according to what we see advertised. It's someone else's vision of the good life. And that's the problem. We've been told how to think, what we should want, what choice looks like, and what to expect as normal. But what if it's not? And that's an important thing for us to understand and to think about. We like to think that we have a lot of choices, but those choices are not as easy or clear-cut as we want them to be. We all have our favorite media and news sources, and most people consider that to be an important decision. And it may be, but it's interesting to note that in the U.S., 95% of media outlets are owned by just six organizations. Yep, even online. So if there's a dominant perspective, it's pretty easy for media to drive the discussions in whatever direction that they want to. Now, I'm not slamming media here, but we need to recognize that our choices may not mean as much as we want them to. We have a lot of ideas about what constitutes the good life. And for most of us, we didn't come up with those ideas on our own. We have been shaped by our culture. 
Now, I'm still cooking on these ideas, but it seems to me that what we have come to call the American dream, you know the one, 2.5 kids, a house, two cars, a dog, and a home to call one's own. Well, it seems to me that that whole idea was a marketing construct. You have to pursue this because everyone else is. Now, I'm not the only person who thinks this way. My outlier perspective got a boost recently from an article by David Brooks in Atlantic Magazine. The nuclear family was a mistake. While I agree with him, most people have a hard time figuring out an alternative. It's worse because so many people try to promote the idea of the traditional family, well, they don't realize that the American dream is not the traditional model. Traditional families were multi-generational homesteads with communal space for gatherings. Grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, cousins, mom, dad, and the person who has no family but came to fix the well, all working and living together in community. Some will object and say that sounds like some hippie commune kind of thing. Well, maybe, but until World War II, that model was common. That model was dominant. Now, I'm not suggesting that I have the solution. I don't. I have no idea how to develop a better model, but I'm pretty sure we need something different. Here's where my Christian faith shows up. I think this model needs to be biblical. It needs to be sustainable, welcoming, healthy, and non-manipulative. It also needs to be a major cultural shift. Now, I'm not suggesting that people should go off and live on a compound somewhere with some cult leader whose chain doesn't reach the sprocket or who's trying to be some sort of dollar store messiah. That ain't it. I am suggesting that we need a better way to think about how we choose to live. So you may be wondering, what does all this have to do with leadership? Well, as I like to say, plenty. If our culture shapes us, then we have to be careful what kinds of things we let influence our thinking. Culture is a bit like the dish soap ad from the early 1980s. You're soaking in it. Like Madge's customers soaking their hands in dishwashing liquid, we're soaking in our culture. It's hard for most of us to imagine different ways of living, different ways of doing business, different ways of leading. But let me give you my favorite example of how culture can shape us without our consent or without even our awareness. Years ago, at a former employer, we had a great team of people, and we all got along really well. Well, one day, we're having a lively discussion about movies, TV, and music, and Diana, not her real name, one of the women on our team, made the confession that she was, quote, addicted to trash TV. She said she recorded a particular show every day so that she could watch it on her own schedule. I won't mention the show, but it featured all kinds of personal dysfunction, family meltdowns, affairs, and, well, you get the idea. Well, immediately, this raised some red flags for me. Unfortunately, I didn't have the good sense to say anything. Diana was one of those people who seemed to have it all together. The American dream, good husband, couple of kids, good family background, and a good job in a field that she liked. A couple of years later, Diana's life flew apart and started looking like that trash TV that she soaked in every day. It was a sad thing to see. She lost her marriage, her kids, her home, and eventually her job. She fed herself a steady diet of dysfunction and wound up living that life. 
Wow, it really is a question of what we choose to soak in. So I have to ask you, what are you soaking in? You know, this is a question I had to ask myself years ago. There are things I don't watch, like, well, trash TV, but there are other things, shows or movies, where people are routinely treated disrespectfully. Some things are just too violent or too, well, they're too evil. And I don't want my mind to bend that way. See, that's the problem. Like I mentioned earlier, it's normativity. If I see enough of something, pretty soon it becomes normal for me. If I constantly expose myself to negative thinking, complaining, and what is impolitely called bitching, it doesn't take me long to fall into that same pattern. It becomes the way I perceive the world and the way I think things ought to be. So instead of changing things for the better, I've let the stuff around me define normal. That's normativity in action. See, you may be wondering, what can we do about this? Well, there are some practical tools that we can use to keep us on the right track. Here are a few things for you to think about. First, give up being a consumer. Now, I don't mean you shouldn't buy things, but what I do mean is you need to be producing something. I hear people say that they've run out of things to watch on streaming movie behemoth. Really? That's all you have to do? Get off the couch and make something. That, that's going to be different for everybody. My family and I spent last weekend cleaning up the yard, burning brush, and making firewood. Sew something. Build something. Create something. Seriously. That's what motivated me to launch this podcast in the first place. I got sick of just consuming media, movies, and TV, and other podcasts. I made a commitment and launched into the unknown. You know, and it's really, it's pretty gratifying to know that this effort has had a positive impact on both of my listeners. See, this has sparked some other things. I'm considering a second podcast, adding another podcast to my lineup. I've started a new writing project that looks like it's going to consist of several standalone small pieces. The next year or so is shaping up to be my most productive year ever. See, take this seriously, and as an essential practice for leaders, do not consume, produce. I've spent a lot of effort talking about the importance of of an interpretive community, the people who help you think and help you make sense of the world. Now, I've found that I can have an interpretive community when I'm not quite as social as I might normally be. So here are a few examples. I love reading the early church fathers. One of my favorites is St. Basil the Great, and I often find him challenging, challenging the way that I think. See, this is stuff that won't show up on StreamNet or even on pay-per-view. How about St. Gregory the Great? He wrote a piece called The Pastoral Rule, and yeah, it's about 1,500 years old. What is surprising is not the advice he gives, but the firm grasp he has of human nature. If you read the book, you'll find all of your co-workers there. And if you're careful, you'll probably also find yourself. Read some C.S. Lewis. It was Lewis who taught me to read old books. And even though his work is only a few generations old, it has great depth of wisdom. How about this? Read from outside your usual sphere of influence. Here are some things you might want to consider. Read Richard Feynman. His book, Mr. Feynman, You Must Be Joking, is just delightful. Raymond Lowy wrote a memoir, Never Leave Well Enough Alone. Nelson Mandela, his autobiography, The Long Walk to Freedom. 
How about Maya Angelou? She wrote two autobiographies, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, or Gather Together in My Name. See, be intentional about soaking in the good stuff. How? Well, the Bible has something to say about this. The Apostle Paul wrote, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Your way of thinking and the people you surround yourself with will have a profound impact on your life. Hang out with rapscallions, and you shall certainly become a rapscallion. Hang out with the considerate, and you shall certainly become considerate. As I've said before, in a variety of ways, choose your interpretive community well. Finally, practice creative thinking. Keep a notebook, and whether you write in it, draw in it, doodle in it, or mess around with poetry, do it. I'm a big fan of bullet journals, but one of the things that has hurt that movement is all the people whose artistry goes far beyond my meager abilities. Fancy, calligraphically rendered notebooks may be helpful to some, but I find them intimidating. My scrawlings never rise to that level. Even so, I use the bullet journal model because it helps me to be more productive. My notebooks are strictly for my eyes only. Occasionally, I draw or write something that delights me and no one else will ever see it. It's like my humor. I think I'm hilarious, and I am because my humor is, first of all, for me. If people around me enjoy it, so much the better, but they are not my target audience. I am. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a snobby way. I mean I'm just not out to impress anyone. I'm just trying to learn and grow personally so that I can be a benefit to others. And yes, I keep a couple of different notebooks. I have one for my work, in the broad, productive sense of the word, one for poetry and playing around with words, one as a mentoring notebook for the people I'm helping to nurture in their life and in their career, and one for kind of design and layouts and big ideas and architectural noodling and engineering stuff and so on. A professional would find them pathetic, but I find them helpful. Now, I found a particular bit of wisdom from John Hendricks, who said this, Think of your notebook as a playground, and not as a portfolio. So, if I had to sum all this up, and I do, it boils down to this. Be a producer, not a consumer. Don't let the media cram you into their mold and tell you that you need the American dream. It could be that the American dream is a compromise and not the sort of life that God has in mind for you. And I feel obligated to mention this. If you want to get a sense of how culture has shaped your view of life, I recommend James K.A. Smith's book, You Are What You Love. I don't agree with him on all points, and neither will you, but he makes a compelling case for the way our lives are shaped by what we do and how we live in the culture around us. See, next time around, we'll talk about how all of this matters in the way we live and the way that we mature into the sort of people that we really need to be for our families, for our friends, for our work, for our social setting, and for the big questions of life. Thanks for joining us at Great Ridge Station. All content is developed by Dr. Sam Helgerson with appropriate citations of outside sources. Our sound engineer is Brick Martin. All background and bumper media is in the public domain and retrieved from archive.org. 
The opening music is from Guy Lombardo, Down by the River. The closing music is from Annunzio Montavani, Skyscraper Fantasy. I'm already looking forward to your next visit to Great Ridge Station. Bye-bye.